All right, good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. <laughs> I love that. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 7, continuing in verse 18. Long passage this morning. I want to welcome all of you who are downstairs here with us today, all of you upstairs in the overflow, in the nursery, and online this morning. That's awesome that you're with us this morning. I saw this post just as a little bit of preface before we read the passage this morning. This week, and, and, and preparing this really lengthy passage in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7, but I saw this quote uh, on, I believe it was the Gospel Coalition website, and it said this. It was, I found this rather challenging. It said this, the Bible is one big book with lots of little books that all tell one story. Preachers much must capture that. <laughs> that sounds pretty simple, right? It, it's easy, right? It's, it's one big book. It's actually a collection of a number of little books, 66 books in total, written over a period of 1,500 years by 40-plus authors, and the preacher's job on a Sunday morning is to preach a passage, but keep all of that in mind. I find that challenging. Anybody else? Like, would, you, would you possibly find that a challenge? But that really is the idea, and, and today's text, I, I could also say this, the Bible is one big book or collection of books, little books telling one specific story, and yet within each book there are these texts that themselves encapsulate not just the context or the specific historical time, but also a a wide swath of the Bible of, of history and of biblical teaching, which we will see today, I hope. Now, once again, before I read this passage today, I want to remind us, once again, as you've seen probably a few times on our main screen that we have for this series, that Dr. Luke, a pagan, skeptic, Greek Gentile, long title, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, probably through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, he tells us in the first chapter in the fourth verse his reason for writing this book. It's really amazing. He wrote it because he wanted another Greek pagan skeptic who's a Roman official by the name of Theophilus. He wanted his good friend Theophilus to have certainty. That's his word. That's the Holy Spirit's word that was given. Certainty about who Jesus is, what he has done, and why he matters most. Certainty. I want you to remember that word this morning because our title for our message today is Doubt Your Doubts right? We're going to see one of the pillars of the church, the early church, of of the Bible, really, in the New Testament, doubting Jesus Christ, doubting him, as many did in that day. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open them to chapter 7. If you have an app on your phone or a tablet, let's read together. It's a long passage. I want to read all of it, and then we're going to dive in after I've prayed one more time. Let me read these words from Luke, beginning in verse 18. He says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we be looking for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, this is coming to Jesus, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them and said, listen, go and tell John what you have seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What do you then go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like, Jesus asks. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, uh, this is a challenging word, a challenging situation, a challenging story. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help me especially this morning to be able to communicate this passage in a clear way. I, I pray that we would see Jesus for who he is for certain. But also, Lord, I pray that we would see John the Baptist who, for who he is, how, how Jesus upholds him and affirms him, and yet at the same time declares that for some reason he has offended John the Baptist. And so, Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom today. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd talk to us, teach us, speak to our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So you've been seeing that since chapter 5 in the Gospel of Luke, we've been seeing that Jesus is performing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It's really astounding what he is doing. 100% of the people who are brought to Jesus for some kind of a healing are healed. Not a few, not some 100% are healed. And yet, we've seen, particularly in the last, I think, five or six weeks, that there seems to be more doubt raised about him, who he is, why he's here, what he's doing, than ever before. Lots of questioning going on. People actually asking the question, just who is this man? And some of the people who he has been offending up until this point in time, particularly the religious leaders, they're more like asking it this way, just who does he think he is? because of the way that he's acting. Well, the last two weeks, we saw two really wonderful stories. The first is is that Jesus is just walking around preaching and teaching like he has been for some time. He's approached by some Jewish friends of a Roman centurion, and they say to him, our friend, this Roman centurion, has a servant who's on his deathbed. He has sent us to you so that you can come and heal him. Well, Jesus begins the walk and the press to go there and and to heal him. But the Roman centurion hears that he's coming and he sends another group of friends out and says, no, 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 I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but could you just do this? Could you say the word 
and my servant will be healed. Well, Jesus hears these words, and he says at that time the most amazing thing that he has said so far in the gospel. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. A Roman pagan centurion is displaying faith like this, complete certainty and faith that Jesus can do this. And what does Jesus do? From a distance, without even being in the presence of this man or the servant, declares him healed, and the servant is healed. Well, shortly after that, we don't know exactly, but probably a week or so after that, Jesus all of a sudden decides, all of a sudden decides, for some reason, and you can tell I'm being somewhat silly about that because we saw last week in the passage that it wasn't just by accident. Jesus sovereignly knew that he was going to run in to this funeral procession coming out of the gates of the town of Nain, a little town of about 30 to 40 people compared to Capernaum with 1,500 to 2,000 people where the bulk of his ministry at that time was going forth. But he heads down there, comes right up in front of this widow, in front of this procession, and she's wailing because her only son has died. So she, she's husbandless. The son is fatherless. And Jesus stops and tells her, do not weep. You do not need to weep anymore. And then he speaks to the young man, the dead young man, and says, arise. Off of the stretcher, the beer as it's called, arise. And we saw last week something remarkable. Not only can Jesus heal from a distance... Jesus can raise someone from the dead. And importantly, we saw this, proof of life after death. A dead body, a dead person heard Jesus and got up. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Remarkable. Remarkable. Well, that story last week ended in verse 17 with these words. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. No kidding. And at this point in time, and we've said this before, but it's, it's growing, the great crowds that are following Jesus are in the thousands of people from all over Judea are following him, some just to be healed, some to be fed, some to hear the great preaching about the kingdom of God, hoping that maybe, in fact, he is the Messiah. And that brings us then to the two verses that we open with this morning, doesn't it? <laughs> And I showed them to you at the end of last week, and they are these. I'll put them on again on the screen. It says this. Well, the disciples of John reported all these things to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So besides Jesus' own disciples who were following down to Nain and then back to Capernaum, and the thousands of people that are following him, clearly some of John the Baptist's own disciples had been following Jesus for a while. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it kind of looks like John had said, hey, go check out what he's doing, right? And then report back to me, because that's exactly what they do here. And upon hearing the report, he sends two of them back, as we've read, to Jesus with a rather shocking question that we see here. It's essentially this, hey, are you the one we're waiting for or shall we start looking for someone else? It's a shocking question. It sounds like doubt, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, don't you think at this point in time, John the Baptist is like, I can't figure it out. Are you the Messiah? My, my second cousin who I grew up with, are you him or are you not? Should we, like, give up on you and start looking for someone else? I'm going to call that doubt, 
okay? I don't know about you, but it kind of looks that way to me. I mean, it's a difficult passage as I was reading commentaries and stuff for, for a lot of Christians. It's a difficult passage, but also for a lot of theologians. The idea, the idea that someone, a pillar like John the Baptist, could doubt Jesus, it's really hard. It's very difficult for people to expect, to accept. But the fact of the matter is, he does. He does doubt Jesus, as do many more of Jesus' disciples during his life and ministry, and even to this day. Amen? Anybody? Anybody got the t-shirt? Ever a little bit of doubt out there? Okay, we'll get to that a little bit later, okay? So, so here's what I'd like to do at this point. What I'd like to do is I'd like to run through the passage, very long passage, and, and more or less paraphrase it, tell the story, give a little background, a little bit of explanation, you know, the one big book with little books and one big story. Kind, kind of get, give us some background so that we can really see what happened here on this particular day. And I hope it'll lead us to the point where we'll be able to talk about our doubts. Our doubts which are real. If you're a Christian here today and you say, I never doubt, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder. But also how we can hopefully answer them and deal with them at the end. So we've seen how this begins with John's disciples reporting back to John what he, Jesus is up to. John sends them back with his two questions. They ask Jesus the questions. And of course, the first thing Jesus does is dive into answering the question, right? No. The very first thing that Jesus does in the passage when you read it is, he all of a sudden, it says for an hour, goes on a miracle crusade like he's never done before. Right in front of John's disciples, he goes, hang on a second here. Before I send you back to John, here's what I'm going to do. And he starts healing everybody. He starts raising people from the dead. And it's really amazing what he does. And then he says to the, John's disciples, he says, here, here's what I want you to go back to John. Tell them, tell John what you just saw. Tell him this that you saw the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers being cleansed, deaf hearing, dead people being raised up. So they must have gone to a cemetery or something. I don't know. But Jesus is saying it's what's happening. And the poor hearing the good news of the gospel. Go and tell John that. Basically is what happens. Lots of good things going on here, John, is what Jesus apparently wants him to know. But then Jesus concludes with some really challenging words to take back to John. The last part of that passage is he says, tell John this, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Tell John that. It's, it's really another beatitude, isn't it? Like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed, he says here, is the one who is not offended by me. It's, it's like a, a mini beatitude, but it's pointed at John. And when John hears this, he's going to understand that. He's certainly going to understand that. So immediately after John's disciples leave Jesus, Jesus then turns to the crowd. And, and, and we would suspect as he turns to the crowd, it's a little bit like they might be thinking, hey, you just, you just put down John the Baptist. Many of us were baptized by him, and we came to follow you because of him, and we think very highly of him. And so Jesus may have been picking up on that. I'm not sure immediately what, uh, what that's all about. But he then turns to the crowd, sensing this, uh, that maybe he's being critical. And he then asks them a series of questions. He says, he asks this, why was it that you went out into the wilderness to be baptized by John? Was it because you, you, you went to see a reed shaken by the wind? I mean, essentially, though, literally, that could be saying, see some easygoing pushover. I mean, did some of you go out there thinking he's just this guy who dresses weird and eats weird, and, you know, you're going out there because you're really not expecting too much? 
Or on the other hand, some fat cat preaching a prosperity gospel. <laughs> you know, somebody in very, you know, from rich home with really good clothing and telling you, you can have this too. Did you go out there to hear that kind of message from John the Baptist? No. A prophet? Jesus says, yes. A prophet indeed. And anybody, we've been through some of the preaching of John the Baptist, right? And he says to the Pharisees and the scribes, woe to you, you vipers. This was a bold man. Repent, you sinners. This is what his message was. It was very bold, really in your face. It was about repentance. And so this was not the man that they were thinking they were going to go see. So what Jesus is really doing here at this point with this crowd in this passage is he's affirming John's ministry before the crowd when he says, I tell you this, he's more than a prophet. And then Jesus quotes a a, a series of many little quotes from the great prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, about the one who's going to be the forerunner who will announce the arrival of the Messiah, who is, of course, John the Baptist. And uh, Jesus says in verse 28, I tell you this, among those born of women, none, none is greater than John. So Jesus, in those words, affirms John completely. In fact, what Jesus is saying is he's the greatest prophet of all time, up until this time. He's the greatest prophet of all time. And so I think what we need to do, and he also goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, which we'll come to. But I think we need a little bit of biblical history, that one big story, right, and this little story that's in between. A little bit of biblical history um, It would be important, I think. What we know from the Old Testament is this. God had been sending prophets to the people of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, the prophets came many times to foretell the future, events that were going to take place, how God was going to do this, how things were going to unfold. But for the most part, the prophets came to call the people of Israel to be faithful, to turn from idols, come back to their God, Live like the people of Israel, which includes, by the way, caring for others. Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet keep coming and saying, turn from your idols. You're being unfaithful. Come back to God. And if you don't, here's what might happen. So prophets went on for a long time. Finally, God has enough. God has enough, and he sends the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last prophet in our Bibles in the Old Testament. His name is Malachi, right? Or some people think he's an Italian prophet called Malachi, but, but he's, he's Malachi. And I always throw that one in for the sake of Lucy. She loves that. Uh, but it's true. He's the last prophet, right? And his message is, repent. You're being unfaithful. Come back to God. And then what we see happen after that is 400 years of silence. God doesn't send any more prophets. People of Israel at this point in time are saying, the Messiah. (laughs) Maybe now the gap will be filled by the Messiah. And so we know that really at the end of the day, John the Baptist is that last prophet. And what we see happen at the beginning of Luke, we've already been through it. We see an angel coming to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and saying to him, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a child in her old, old age. They're both in their 90s. And so that's a miracle into itself. And you're going to name him John. 
and Zechariah is a priest in the temple. It's very, very important to see that. It's the tie-in from the Old Testament. But this same angel also goes to this 14-year-old Jewish girl whose name is Mary and tells her, you are going to conceive as a virgin via the Holy Spirit and you are going to have a son and his name is going to be Jesus. And he will be the Messiah. And of course, Mary and Elizabeth are related. Uh, most people believe that uh, Elizabeth is Mary's aunt, and so therefore Jesus and John are second cousins. And so what happens is we don't know a lot about their life from the time that they are very, very young up until they're 30 years of age. But what we do know is around 28, 29, John decides he's called to his ministry. He starts dressing really weird, cutting his hair kind of strange, right? And he goes out into the wilderness to the River Jordan and he starts calling the people of Israel to come and repent. This time, truly repent and be baptized him for this true repentance in the waters of the Jordan River. And he's, he's an interesting guy, right? He's like 30 years of age. He's this very aesthetic, uh, spiritual man who lives in the wilderness, wears animal skins and eats, eats a gluten-free diet. It says right there earlier, right, he ate no bread. I just thought I'd put that in there. Um, I mean, locusts and honey. Come on, it's, it's, it's gluten-free. This is his diet. Really strange, pure guy. So John the prophet begins his ministry, a ministry of calling his Jewish brothers and sisters to true repentance, the last and final prophet before Jesus calls people to repent. And then one day, Jesus shows up to be baptized by John, not needing this baptism because he's never sinned. And even John's like, well, what, what am I doing baptizing you? You know, because John knows who he is. He's grown up with him. John relents because Jesus says, no, this needs to happen to fulfill all righteousness. So baptize me. John baptizes him. And at that point in time, he declares, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Follow him. This is the one I've been talking about. Follow him. At this point in time, John's ministry is done. At this point in time for John the Baptist, what's supposed to happen is he's supposed to fade into the background and Jesus takes the foreground. It's interesting. A little while later, we read in, in, uh, about John in Luke chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, says this. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news. So he kept preaching for a bit. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked, that he locked up John in prison. So what was it that John, John had done? Well, besides calling all the religious leaders a brood of vipers, and they, of course, went to Herod and said, would you deal with this guy? Like, look what he's, he, he's saying that about us, but he's also saying that about you. But also, John had publicly declared that Herod had committed adultery. And he called him out on it. And so Herod's attitude at that point in time was, well, I'm just going to throw him in prison until... At some point in time, I can get rid of him. And he couldn't right away because, well, his wife and many people in the community loved John the Baptist, and so he just threw him in prison. But you know, you know the end of the story, don't you? He eventually does behead John the Baptist. So all the while that Jesus is off healing the sick, raising the dead, and preaching these amazing sermons, we need to understand, John's in prison. <laughs> and it's not a very pretty prison. And he's there for probably a year to 18 months overall. And so maybe we could cut him a little bit of slack here and say, hey, Jesus, what about me? Well, maybe, but 
no, let's not do that just right away. Let's get back to our text. So the crowd heard Jesus affirm John's ministry and praise him when he said this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. But then he added, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, the tax collectors and all of the regular low, you know, low on the food chain sinners are kind of like, oh, that's awesome. You know, we, we believe in Jesus, we're in the kingdom, and we're going to be greater than John the Baptist. They kind of misunderstood, right? <laughs> they kind of under, misunderstood what Jesus was really getting at when he said that. Jesus was again affirming that John was the greatest and the last of the prophets. But the good news is this. The announcer, the apostles, any of the men and women in the early church who we revere today because they wrote books of the Bible and so forth are none, no greater than any other believer in the kingdom of God. Amen? There's level ground at the cross. <laughs> We should respect and honor these men and women, but we're saints in Christ too if we are Christians here today. And so there's, a, there's an interest. So what Jesus was actually doing was this. He was comparing those who came to John to be baptized because they truly were repentant for their sins this time and of their sinful ways with the Pharisees and the scribes who would not lower themselves to publicly declare that they were sinners. I mean, look at us, the way we dress. We're obviously not sinners, right? We're pure, we're holy. Look at the way we, we, we speak in the King James. Okay, it wasn't out yet. But they wouldn't do that. And that's what Jesus is doing at that point. He's, he's comparing the two. Jesus ends then, then with this final couplet, another comparison that's very telling. And this time it's pointed at the Pharisees, at the religious doubters who were too good in their own minds to be seen publicly repenting. Jesus asked, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Oh boy, I tell you, there are times when I read the Bible where I'd like to be transported back in time and be able to be there just to see the look on their faces, right? And maybe my face too and others, but I mean, he calls them children. He calls them children. These, these are theologians. These are great rabbis and, and Pharisees, and they think they're at the top of the food chain, not down here, and he's calling them babies, kids and children. That's what he's doing, and they knew it. It was a common saying by kids in those days. They said, hey, we played some really cheery music for you, but it didn't make you happy. And so then we tried something else. We, we, we played a funeral march. Uh, just to see whether or not you could be, you know, brought to tears and be mournful. And, well, we couldn't make you happy with that either, right? So Jesus is then comparing this uh, to their doubting attitude towards himself and John the Baptist. John comes along living the very pious and pure life, the kind of uh, set-apart life that Pharisees and scribes wanted to be seen as. He was doing that, and they called him a demon. They literally <laughs> suggested he was possessed by a demon, well, then Jesus comes along and, and you know, he's this, you know, cares for the poor and, and loves everybody and, and, and comes along eating and drinking with tax collectors and, and in their opinion, the other riffraff in the world. And, and they call him a glutton and a drunkard, someone who likes to hang around with the lowest of the low. It's impossible to make these people happy is what Jesus is getting at. Now, I really would have liked to have been there at that point because I got to believe with this great crowd of people, there was a long pause of silence. What do you say to this stuff when you're hearing this from Jesus? Well, again, remember as I started this morning, as we've seen for weeks now in the Gospel of Luke, that after all of the wonderful sermons, wonderful, 
wonderful sermons. You are, you are a city set on a hill. You're salt and light. Go and love. God loves you. He's preaching the kingdom and, and the love of God that's come upon people. All of this for, for weeks and weeks has been going on. The miracles, the healings, the raising of dead people. After all that for months and months, it seems like the only question people are asking is, who is this guy? Who is this man? I mean, we've got to be careful. You know, we can be a little smug here on this side of the cross a few thousand years out and go, well, isn't it obvious? <laughs> he hadn't died and risen from the dead yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't been imparted to people. We should cut a little bit of slack, I guess. On the one hand, it should have been obvious, especially to those who saw and heard him firsthand, we would think. But here's the lesson for us today. It's a good lesson. Most of them doubted him. Most of them did doubt him questioned him, were unsure of him. But why? That's the question for today. Let's start with John the Baptist. We've already seen that when Jesus says this, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, to John the Baptist, he's really actually saying this, John, why are you offended by me? What have I done? Why do you doubt me? Isn't he? I think that's the inflection that he wants John to pick up on. So the question is then, well, how, how did Jesus offend John the Baptist? Or how, how, what did Jesus do that offended him? Well, the answer to that question is primarily this. John clearly, listen, and none of us should be, clearly wasn't offended by the fact that Jesus was loving on the poor right, and healing the sick and, and, and giving sight to the blind and doing all the good things is he or was he? I don't think so. Who could, be, who could be upset with that? Who could be offended with that if that's all Jesus did, right? No, it seems to be that John uh, was upset or offended because Jesus was not doing things that he thought he should be doing in his humble opinion, right? Jesus wasn't doing what John expected of him. Seems to be why John was offended by him. It's, it's a little bit like this, you know, John knew that Jesus was doing what the Messiah should do with the healings and the loving and the, and the wonderful preaching and the sermons about God and the truth of the kingdom. But on the other hand, on the other hand, he's asking, Jesus, where is the judgment? Come on, where, where's the fire and brimstone, the judgment on these, these terrible Romans that are oppressing us and the Jewish religious system? When are you going to deal with that? When are you going to get rid of that? Seems to be what John was offended by. I mean, listen, John's languishing in prison because of both of these corrupt systems, right? The Jewish religious leaders didn't come to his defense. The Romans, Herod is like, I'm going to behead him as soon as I can, right? And so he's wondering, Jesus, where are you for me? I'm your cousin. I'm the forerunner. Ultimately, this is what it is. It's not just that he's offended by what Jesus is not doing, is it? I think there's one other thing we can see here. It seems that he's offended by his timing, right? It seems that he's offended by his timing. I think we can see by Jesus' response and actions that he's saying to John and to all of us here this. I think he might be saying something like this. John, listen, you should know this. I'm here on a rescue mission. That's the primary reason why I'm here, right? I'm in a rescue mission. I know you're in prison, and I know you're under hardship. 
You know I'm God. You know I know, all, I know these things. I've also gotten reports. I know that. I, I know you're in prison. I know the Roman oppression is hard to bear. I know the religious system that you and I grew up in has got to come to an end. But John, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust the plan that my father and that I am working out and our timing that it's perfect? Do you trust me? Again, I'd love to have been there just to see whether, and I got to believe because John, John is never seen after that to be denying Jesus or turning from Jesus. But probably a lot of conviction fell on him, right? What was I thinking? Sending that question back to Jesus. So friends, this is why they all doubted Jesus at different points in those days. Whether John the Baptist, whether Peter, I don't know him, <laughs> I don't know who he is, denies him three times, that's doubting. What about doubting Thomas? Remember that guy? Right? And I like to always point that out. He wasn't the only one who needed to see the body before he believed, but he did doubt. He said, in fact, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe. Pretty big doubt, right? I've got to see that in order to believe. Comes from John the Baptist. So, again, I've asked this already today, but what about you and me here today? What about us? Come on. Show of hands. Ever doubted? You're so shy and bashful. I know. Thank you. There's a few hands, and the rest of you need to repent. But Okay, how about this? When it comes to trusting Jesus and his plan and his timing, how about this? How about your marriage, right? How about in your marriage? Have you doubted him there? Is he doing with your spouse what you think he should be doing and in the time frame yet you think he should be doing it, right? It works both ways, boys. Be careful. Do you sometimes feel like that really his, that he should get on with it, that he should pick up his timing, that why is he waiting so long to fix him or fix her or fix this situation and get these things done? How about finding you a spouse, right? How about a job? How about a new and better job, you know, that puts more green stuff in, uh, like, into the bank? What about a bigger house? What about a house to begin with? Like, when's God going to, when's Jesus going to help me with that? How about children? Or how about maybe fixing the ones that I've got? <laughs> right? There are so many different ways that we can doubt Christ. But how about also, when we're really honest, with your own issues? Like, like the sin in your life that you, you, uh, you really would like taken care of. Now, there's a part on, uh, your, that you have to... Uh, play in that, a role that you have to play in that, but sometimes it feels like Jesus is the one who's just not doing his part, right? Enough. We've got to be careful about that. Things like addiction and so forth. It's, listen, John, let's look at also the time that he's looking at. He was concerned about Jesus' timing and wondered why he didn't bring down fire and judgment on these horrible Romans. Hmm. This is politics. Think about that, Right? And so let me speak to the Christian here today and just simply, or listening online, simply ask this, do you ever wonder if Jesus, if God cares one bit about the kind of uh, political leaders that we have in this world today? Do you think he cares? Do you think he cares? When is he going to deal with that, you might be asking? Does he care? 
Um, why is he taking so long? What's he waiting for? Listen, as Christians, I think we need to be careful. We need to hear this. Often our critical spirits towards those in power over us at any different level, it can be police, it can be local government, it can be provincial and national and world governments. At the end of the day, aren't we ultimately saying that we're being offended by Jesus? As Christians, I think we need to be so careful. I, listen, I got the T-shirt, okay? I will argue from time to time wrongly on Facebook about politics. Lord, forgive me. Church, forgive me. I think we need to be careful about all this. I mean, aren't we, first of all, aren't we doubting His sovereignty? Do we not believe that King Jesus is on His throne and that He has all authority in this world today? That's what He tells us. Listen to this, though. Do we also not therefore believe that the rulers that are in power over us are put into that role by Him? Our Scriptures teach us that. The Word of God teaches us that. So we, we need to be very, very careful. Let's get, let's, let's get a little bit more practical as we come to our conclusion here today. There's good news, really good news in this passage for you and I here today. Great leaders of our faith, as I've already said, great leaders of our faith, John the Baptist, apostles, you know, many of the early church leaders, church fathers from the day of the New Testament being completed until this day, have doubted, have doubted Jesus, have doubted their faith. But hear this, hear this, this is important again. There's a big difference between doubting as a Christian and sheer unbelief. Doubting is having questions that are seeking an answer. I want to repeat that. Doubting for a Christian are questions that are actually seeking an answer. That's why I believe Jesus immediately forgave John the Baptist. Because his question was seeking an answer, wasn't it? It was a doubtful question, but it was like, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? I sent back evidence to you, John. I'm the one. He answered his question. On the other hand, sheer unbelief is, is simply this. I do not, I will not believe, I don't care what kind of evidence you bring my way. I've said this before. Christian, be careful. There's a difference between good questions and a questioning spirit. It's the difference between doubting and sheer unbelief. For Christians here today and listening, I, I want to propose this to you. You have three enemies. We have three enemies in this world that are specifically working on us day in and day out to cause us to doubt Jesus Christ. They are, the Scripture teaches us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Amen? What was, what was the first thing that happened that caused us to be broken people in the Garden of Eden? What was it that Satan came to Eve and asked her? Did God really what? Say. Excuse me, is that doubt? <laughs> the world, the flesh, and love. Let me just unpack that really quickly for you before we close. Uh, when, when I say the world, when we say the world, we're not talking about those people out there, okay? You've got to be careful about that. These people are made in the image of God. God loves everybody. God wants everyone to repent and to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? The world means the pattern of this world, the world system that is opposed to God, that is living in unbelief. That world system for the believer is hard to live in, right? It, it's offering its own way to salvation, its own way to happiness and joy and success in this life apart from God. 
That's a struggle, Christian. That's going to be a struggle for you. It's a struggle for me to leave here, to leave you, and to go out and see all of the things that the world can offer, and then all of a sudden not go, well, look, other people can have that, and why can't I have that, Jesus? Hmm, right? But then there's the flesh, which really means our, quote, sinful nature, but for the Christian, that's your old nature, but it's still at work in you, right? And so there are times in our lives as Christians where it's like, yeah, you know, <clears throat> Yeah, no, I really want to live for Jesus. I really want to be, uh, live a sin, sinless life and, and a pure life. I really do. But, you know, there were some things that I used to do that, you know, they weren't that bad. <laughs> they, they made me happy, and I kind of missed them. And so that's always at work at you. But the last one is the devil, and we need to be careful to understand this. He's at work in all of them. He's at work in every single way. And I've said this before, and it bears repeating here today. He has one objective and one goal for every human being on this planet, and that is that he wants you dead. One way or the other, ideally without Christ, to go to your grave without placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But as a second plan B option, if he can't accomplish that, then what he wants for you, Christian, is for you to live a functionally dead life as a Christian constantly doubting, constantly unsure, constantly not having the certainty that Luke, who's writing this gospel, that the Holy Spirit wants you and I to have. Let me leave you with this uh, final story. I'm hoping that the story will uh, answer the question, uh, what you can do to have more faith and to doubt less. It's found in the gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 22 to 24 is what I'm going to show you, but it's the story of a father who comes to Jesus with, with a son who's possessed by a demon. And it's, it's, a, it's a really tragic and sto sad story to begin with because the, this, the, the man explains, the father explains to Jesus is that this, this demon wants my son dead. He literally is trying to get him to throw himself into fires and burn himself up and to die, like I just said. And the father, he starts pleading with Jesus, like, you're my last hope. I mean, would you please heal my son? Would you please cast this demon out? But the words that he uses and says to Jesus are kind of said in a doubtful way. And his words are this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's not like the Roman centurion's request, is it? You can heal him. This is, if you can do anything, I love Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, if you can, right? Question mark, right? All things are possible for the one who believes. So he's standing in front of the Son of God. He doesn't believe yet. He doesn't believe. He, he's heard the stories about Jesus, but he doesn't really believe yet. He's, he's, he's not gone from unbelief to belief. This is not just doubt. This is unbelief. But Jesus says, if you can, really, he says, you, you mean if I can? And then it says this, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's my good word for you today as we close. So what can you do? What can I do? It's your answer right here. Pray. Pray. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. F friends, look, you, you know this. We don't earn or get our faith or our belief in God by what we do, or we don't lose it by what we do either. It's similar to our salvation. We don't earn our salvation. It is a gift from God. Belief, saving faith and saving belief, and removal of doubt is a gift from God. So let me encourage you today. 
Do you believe in him? Have you trusted him as your personal savior? Do you believe in him? If you do, just ask him for more faith. Pray with me, would you?